Um, have a seat. I'm going to read the Bible for us today. Um, today's reading is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 um, through to chapter 27, verses 10, which is on page 854, 855 of your church Bibles if you have them. So just give you a minute to find the spot. And let's pray as we um, come to God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you have provided your word for us. Uh, Please, would your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word today. Amen. Reading from verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, 
he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used it to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Thanks, Joelle. Good morning. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sierra Hill. It's great you can join us for church this morning. Uh, a particularly warm welcome f- uh, to you if you're new or visiting. We're really glad that you came. We pray that you really feel welcomed uh, and blessed by your time with us this morning. Uh, if you're here uh, to help commission uh, the Bayliss's, uh, then we're really glad to be partnering the gospel with you as well. Um, yeah, it's been a real delight over the last couple of months to uh, see so many amongst us uh, go out and take the good news of Jesus uh, to the ends of the earth, even to uh, Auckland, uh, as I was up there last week with the Giesbers, um, uh, that, that big city in much need of the gospel. Um, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew uh, chapter uh, 26 uh, this morning. We're going to be looking particularly at that, uh, the trial of Jesus in the Sanhedrin. So if you're wondering why I don't refer to the other stuff, we're just going to focus in on there. Uh, and next uh, week on Good Friday, we're going to uh, look at Jesus on the cross and then on Easter Sunday, Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and so uh, that's where we're heading this morning. So it'd be great if you have a Bible open, great if you have a, a sermon outline there. Uh, what we usually do here at Sion Hill is work our way through books of the Bible like this, because uh, we, uh, like the Bayliss, are thoroughly convinced that it's God's Word uh, that is powerful and effective to change the world, uh, to transform people's lives. So let's ask God to speak to us uh, through the Scriptures this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you do speak, that you are the God uh, who speaks through your Word. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit so we might understand what you have to say. And Lord, we pray now that as we read your word, that you might transform our hearts and our minds uh, so that we might see Jesus as he really is. And Lord, we pray that as we do this this morning, we also pray for those, uh, uh, for the timber people, uh, who also have the privilege of hearing your voice through the scriptures in their own language. We pray for them and for us that we might know Jesus as the Supreme Lord, as the loving King who laid down his life for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin by asking uh, you if you know what a mic drop is. Do you know what a mic drop is? Uh, Some of the younger people in the room are nodding their heads. Some of the older people uh, in the room have kind of got that screensaver look on their face. Uh, A mic drop, it was made internet famous by Barack Obama, as you can probably see here. Uh, in 2016. Uh, That's when it kind of really hit internet fame. Uh, But it emerged out of the rap battles in the 1980s, like all the best things coming out of the 80s. Um, What it is, is when there's an argument uh, or a debate or a rap battle and someone delivers a line that is so good, that is so comprehensively better than anything that's been said, they've got complete confidence that they've won, that that they drop the microphone. 
Uh, they're so confident that there is no way that anyone could reply to what they have said. Uh, there is no need for the microphone anymore. Conversation over. Uh, if, you're, if you're more into tennis, it's like the, the, the verbal equivalent of hitting an ace in tennis. They can't even get their racket to the ball. Uh, now, if you know anything about the context of Obama's mic drop moment, it was in 2016. He spent much of that speech roasting uh, the then businessman Donald Trump, mocking him for how ridiculous it would be for him to ever to be considered to be president of the United States, only for six months later for that uh, to come true. Uh, but we'll leave that aside for another day. Uh, but here in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus delivers his mic drop moment. He delivers a line that is so powerful, that is so controversial, that is so devastating to those who listen, there is nothing that can be said in reply. His opponents have no comeback. All they can do is rage against him. So what's the mic drop line from Jesus here? Did you notice it as we went through? It's right there in verse 64. Verse 64 of chapter 27, Jesus said, But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming in the clouds of heaven. It's kind of like, boom, sit down, shut up, Jesus in the house, mic drop, I won't drop the microphone because the sound desk guys will have a fit. (laughs) Now, can you see what's going on there? Well, if you can't, if you're a little confused, maybe if you're a little underwhelmed by these words from Jesus, you're in good company because I didn't get it at first either. It took me a while to realize the significance of what Jesus is saying here. But once I did, when you grasp what Jesus is saying here, these words, they change the world. They really do. These words of Jesus here in verse 64, they ought to change the life of every man, woman and child who has ever lived. These words here from Jesus, they demand a response from every single one of us, whether we follow him or not. So come with me, let's look at this trial that Jesus endures and let's see if we can work out what the fuss is all about. Uh, So just to bring you up to speed where we're up to in Matthew's Gospel, uh, now this is the night before Jesus will be crucified, it's the Thursday before Good Friday. Uh, If you're really kind of into uh, Bible dating and stuff like that, it's actually the 2nd of April that this happens, the date of today, Uh, 1,990 years ago to the day and things are building towards Jesus' anticipated death. He's been anointed. He's had the Last Supper. He's been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been betrayed. He's been arrested. And as each, part, as each episode has passed us by, uh, Jesus, we see, walks unflinchingly to the cross. But as each episode pass by, passes by, Jesus gives us more detail and about, the, about the meaning and the significance of his death. You see, as we get closer to the cross, Jesus is shedding light on what is about to take place. He's actually, Jesus is giving us the interpretation of the cross. He's giving it to us as he journeys to the cross. You see, Jesus doesn't want us to guess or speculate about what's going to happen when he dies on the cross. No, Jesus is clear. He's emphatic. There's no ambiguity about what's taking place. You see, a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus anointed at Bethany. And that tells us that Jesus' death is of immense value, that he's dying as the Messiah, as the King, and his, his cross, dying on the cross, that is the climax of his saving work as God's promised Saviour. And then at the Passover, we saw that Jesus' death is a redemptive death. It has redemptive power, like the Passover lamb that secured the rescue of Egypt. So now Jesus, 
His death will rescue the people of God. And last week we saw in the garden that Jesus' death will be a wrath-bearing death. Jesus, remember, he said, he said to God, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now the cup, it's the cup of God's anger, of his just wrath at, at human sin, at your sin and my sin. And Jesus is saying he is on his way to drink the cup of that wrath, to drink it for us on the cross so that we don't have to. And so what Jesus is doing is he's steadfastly walking to the cross. He's telling us what is really going on here. He's laying down his life as the Messiah to redeem God's people by taking God's just wrath for their sin and their rebellion. That's what's going on when he dies on the cross. Now, I know a lot of you will have heard that before, uh, but it's important to realize here, Jesus is not leaving the cross open to interpretation. Uh, the cross is not like some piece of uh, postmodern art where we can all walk up to it and go, hmm, this is what it means for me, and, and you can come up and say, this is what it means for you. No, Jesus gives us the meaning. He tells us in advance what is going on as he's about to die on the cross. And so it means that the cross isn't just a model of self-sacrifice. The cross isn't just a display of God's love for us. It is both of those things, but that's not just what's going on. Some people might even say that the cross is a deviation from God's plan, which God has to kind of bring back onto the, onto, onto the rails through the resurrection. Some people will see the cross as an example of the sorts of injustices in the world that we're supposed to fight. But Jesus says, no, I'll tell you what the cross means. The cross is me willingly laying down my life for the sin of God's people, so they might be saved. And here in the trial of Jesus... Uh, another dimension to that picture is added. You see, as Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish religious court, we see that in his death on the cross, he will be given ultimate power and authority. As Jesus dies on the cross, he'll be vindicated as God's supreme ruler over all. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 64. That's the mic drop moment here. That is what gets these religious leaders into such a rage. Uh, so open your Bibles up, come with me to Matthew chapter 26, uh, starting at verse 57. And we begin with this corrupt court. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Uh, now, just to let you know, there's plenty of shady practices going on here. Uh, firstly, this court has convened at night. Uh, under Jewish law, it was forbidden to hold a trial at night, uh, Jesus has just been arrested in the garden. He's had the Passover meal with his disciples and he's brought straight to this court. Uh, it's clear it's all been prearranged. Uh, and if someone was ever to be trialed for a capital offence like Jesus is, uh, the trial couldn't be rushed. The, the rules were, the laws were, law was, it had to span a couple of days. Uh, there should be a proper process, uh, a time for proper deliberation. But not this court. It's done at night, it's done in a hurry. Because there's only one outcome that these uh, religious leaders are interested in. Which is why into the corrupt court come these false witnesses. Look at verse 59. Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Despite all the false witnesses coming before the court in the middle of the night, they can't pin any evidence onto Jesus 
which is a real problem for them because they need some concrete evidence that they can stick to Jesus uh, so they can take him to the Romans and say, execute him because they couldn't do it themselves. And so they persist. Verse 60, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Uh, Now, as the Sanhedrin have been hunting around for evidence, they eventually find two witnesses, two witnesses who agree uh, that these guys, they've overheard something that Jesus said when he was teaching his disciples. And see, Jesus did talk in Matthew 24 about the temple being destroyed. But in Matthew 24, if you read it, he never said that he was going to be the one to do it. Maybe they're referring to what Jesus said in John 2, where he said something similar. But in John 2, where he talked about the temple being destroyed and being rebuilt in three days, well, Jesus was talking about his own body. He was talking about his own death and resurrection. But we have these witnesses, and whatever they've seen and whatever they've heard, they've got it wrong. They've taken his words out of context. They've applied his words for their own sinister meaning. Uh, But, you know, uh, the truth isn't going to get in the way of this court and their their decision... uh, Uh, They think they've got what they need. Uh, And so these false witnesses, they stand before the court and they accuse Jesus. They accuse him of of, of planning to destroy the temple. Uh, And the charge of desecrating a sacred place, well, that was a capital offense in the ancient world. But it's plain to see, isn't it? The trial of Jesus is a sham. The trial of Jesus, it only amplifies his innocence. And so what does Jesus say in response to this sham trial? Well, the first thing we see is his response is silence. Silent innocence. Uh, Have a look at verse 62. Verse 62, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Verse 63, But Jesus remained silent. Silence from Jesus, why? I mean, this is a man who has spoken with such authority and precision. This is a man who has run rings around his opponents in every debate. This is a man who's constantly put the same religious crowd, same religious leaders, he's put them in their place. And he's amazed uh, the crowds watching with his powerful words. And here he remains strangely silent. Why? Why? was to fulfill what what was prophesied about him in Isaiah 53. Hundreds of years before Jesus uh, set foot on the earth, uh, this was said about the Saviour who would come. It said, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, Jesus knows exactly where this is going. He knows he is on his way to the cross. And he goes there as one who is completely innocent, like a lamb to the slaughter. But he also goes as one who is in complete control. Things aren't getting out of hand here for Jesus. He is the one who is resolutely walking to the cross for you and for me. Now, the high priest here in the, in the court, he thinks he's driving the charges against Jesus and, and he's got a trick to kind of force Jesus to respond. Uh, verse 63 again, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Now here by the high priest invoking the name of God, he's somehow compelling Jesus to answer. But he doesn't have to force a response out of Jesus for this one. You see, this question from the high priest, it goes to the very heart of Jesus' identity. It goes to the core of his, of his mission and his purpose. You see, this is the charge that Jesus is happy to answer for. See, the high priest is asking Jesus, are you God's promised king? He's asking Jesus, are you the long-awaited saviour of God's people? And if Jesus is going to be found guilty for anything, this is going to be it. And so this is Jesus' mic drop moment. This is where he replies with supreme authority. Verse 64, you have said so, says Jesus. But I say to all of you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see what's going on here? Jesus doesn't just reply with authority. Jesus' reply claims ultimate authority. You see, Jesus tells the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the whole world who is listening, he tells them what it means for him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And as Jesus does that, he blows up those categories. They are bigger and more powerful and more significant than anything they expected or could have imagined. You see, with these words, Jesus lifts the role of the Messiah out from kind of the, the small fry nature of earthly politics and he sets the Messiah on, on the, in the realm of heavenly authority. The Messiah, he says, is the one who comes with power and dominion on a cosmic, on an eternal scale. And the way that he does that is he takes this court and he takes it back to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, That's what's quoted there in verse 64. Uh, Daniel uh, is a prophet in the Old Testament. And in chapter 7 of his book, uh, the curtain is drawn back on God's heavenly throne room. Uh, Daniel is given a glimpse into God's heavenly throne room where he sees the seat of God's eternal power and authority Uh, And when Daniel goes and sees that vision, this is what he sees. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. It should be on the screen. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's quite the image, isn't it? This is the power and authority that Jesus is claiming. This is the one that Jesus says who he is. And look there, look at the nature of his rule. It's universal, it's, it's authority, glory, sovereign power, it's everlasting, it's a, a dominion that will never pass away. It is royal, a kingdom that can never be destroyed. You see, Jesus here is claiming, he is claiming to be the king who will rule over every single person who has ever been born on this globe. Jesus is saying that from in this point in time, he will have a dominion that will extend to every single nation, every individual, every language, every culture, every people group across the whole world over all time. They will all be under Jesus. And he's saying it will never end. It will not pass away. It will never be destroyed. The great author C.S. Lewis puts Jesus' claim in context like this. 
Lewis says, among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he were God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. When you have a grasp of that, you'll see that what this man has said was quite simply, and here it is, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. What Jesus is saying is the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And if you think I'm exaggerating here, you know, a bit of preacher's license to just kind of make something big to get you all excited, or if you think that C.S. Lewis is getting a little bit ahead of himself, look at the high priest. His reactions prove that we've understood Jesus' claim, don't they? Verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes. He goes into kind of full Hulk mode. Uh, can, you, you know, can you imagine a priest in a cathedral kind of, there's a new shirt, I won't rip it, um, but like, can you imagine him ripping the priestly garments? He's so enraged by what Jesus has said. Verse 65, the high priest tore his robes. And he said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. You see, as far as they're concerned, Jesus has sealed the deal for them. This is such an outrageous claim. It must be blasphemy. The only thing they can do with someone who speaks like this is put them to death. And so here we have the corrupt court with the false witnesses. They've come and they've got the outcome that they wanted. But as Jesus responds, he was silent. He was silent because he was innocent, like a lamb to the slaughter. But as he's there, he asserts his supreme authority, that he is the one with the rule and the reign that will never end. And it will be his through the cross. It will be his through the cross. Did you notice it there? There are three small words in verse 64. Three small words in verse 64. From now on. From now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying that it will be through the cross that he will be given ultimate power and authority. It's in his death that he will be crowned King and Ruler and Judge of all. Which is why in just a few chapters later, in in chapter 28, when Jesus has been resurrected, alive, never to die again, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Because it was given to him on the cross. And so what that means is that right now, Jesus sits in that heavenly throne room and he sits there with all power and authority and dominion. And right now, Jesus is ruling a kingdom that has no end. And right now, Jesus is ruling over every nation and every language and every person, including you and me. Which, if that is true, if that is true, that ought to be the most significant, the most life-altering news you have ever heard. Because if that is true, that changes everything. Now, there are some claims that come to us that we can just ignore. I got an email this week. Uh, Apparently, I'm the long-lost relative to some aristocrat who died. Uh, Unlucky for him, lucky for me, uh, because their lawyer said, I just need to send the relevant bank details, passwords, and PIN numbers, and I'll be fabulously rich. But that's a claim I can ignore, right? 
But to hear that there is a king who has claim over your life, to hear that there is a judge that you'll have to answer for, to hear that there is a ruler who will have the final say where you spend all eternity, to hear there is a saviour who has laid down his life for you. Is that not massive news? News that has the potential to change your whole life? Surely that warrants some level of serious investigation? Now, I know that many of us, we don't take the claims of Jesus very seriously. How do I know we don't? Well, we don't respond like this high priest did who really got it, did he? Uh, We're not overcome or outraged about who Jesus is. Uh, Many of us treat Jesus' claims the same way we would think about uh, Prince Leonard of the Hutt River Principality. I don't know if you've heard of the Hutt River Principality. It's not the Hutt River here in Wellington. It's the Hutt River in Western Australia. Uh, Prince Leonard, in 1970, had had enough of paying tax to the Australian government. Uh, So he declared his 75-square-kilometre property in remote Western Australia... He declared it an independent nation, his own sovereign territory. He made himself some robes, he built a throne, got a flag, kind of made a little passport, uh, and he claimed to rule over this small patch of dirt 500 kilometres north of Perth. Uh, and it was fun while it lasted, but eventually the taxman did catch up to him, and the kingdom was sold in 2020 and closed down. Now, many of us treat the claim of Jesus' rule and authority like Prince Leonard. Loopy, a little bit frivolous, a bit of a joke. We don't really have to take it seriously, do we? But to not heed these words of Jesus and respond, to not take them serious is to be headed for disaster. It's to be setting ourselves up against the one who has all authority under heaven and earth. You see, Jesus, his claim to authority over you, it's the real deal. It was established through his death. It was vindicated by his resurrection. It will be manifest for all to see when he returns in glory. And in reality, rather than Jesus being like Prince uh, Leonard, we're we're more like Prince Leonard than we like to think. Here we are fussing around with our little lives, building our little kingdoms, our puny little empires, living with the illusion that we are in control of it all, thinking that we'll never be held to account, thinking we can run things however we want with our own little kind of paper Burger King crown on our head, when in reality there is a true and living king. A true and living king who rules over every man, woman and child who ever lived. A king with power and authority. A king to which we must give an account. And no amount of putting our head in the sand will prepare us for that day. So this reality, these words from Jesus ought to make us sit up and take notice. Jesus' claim here, it it compels us to investigate further. Whether you believe uh, Jesus to be telling the truth or not, his claim here is so massive and the consequences are so significant, it really warrants a closer look. And if that's where you're at, we'd love to help you to get to the bottom of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what that might mean for you. We'd love to help you 
work that out because we're convinced that there is no better thing in all eternity, there is no better thing than knowing Jesus as your King. There is no better thing than having Jesus as your King. See, Jesus is no heavenly tyrant. Jesus isn't an overbearing religious watchdog. He's not a restrictive killjoy. No, we see in this passage what sort of King Jesus is, don't we? We see what sort of King Jesus is. We see uh, uh, that Jesus sits on the throne of heaven. He sits as the Lord of history. But how did he get there? Well, he got there by willingly laying down his life for people like you and me. And isn't that the best news? That by Jesus' death on the cross, God the Father has placed Jesus on the throne, ruling as the King of love. Ruling as the one who got there by self-sacrifice. Ruling as the one who comes to bring real and lasting justice. Ruling because he gave himself for you. Ruling because he bore God's wrath in your place, so that you might not. And who doesn't want to serve a king like that? A king who gains his throne, not by military force, not through political machinations, but a king who sits on the throne because of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love for you. Jesus' words here, uh, they're words if they're true, they change the world, don't they? They're words, if you trust him, if you let him be your king, they'll change your life for all eternity. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. Your word that speaks so clearly of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the way that Jesus explains what his death means. That he is the promised Savior King who has laid down his life for us. Lord, help us to take his word seriously and live with him as our king so we might experience the hope and life and future and forgiveness that you have brought only through him. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Uh, if the band want to come up, um, we're going to continue to reflect on God's word by uh, singing together. Uh, So uh, will you please stand as we respond uh, in song?